Welcome to the Marian Consort podcast. I'm Rory McCleary, Artistic Director of the Marian Consort. In anticipation of our live performances later this month at the York Early Music Festival and at King's Place in London, I caught up with eminent musicologist and good friend of the Marian Consort, Dr Bonnie Blackburn, to chat about a fascinating but sadly largely overlooked Renaissance musical figure, Vicente Lusitano. We also managed to touch on musical borrowing, Josquin mania and bootleg motets. In our York and London concerts, we'll be giving what's almost certainly the first performance for over 400 years of Lusitano's motet Inviolata Integra et Casta es Maria. Bonnie was kind enough to help me with deciphering some of the complexities of the piece in the original 16th century part books, including a number of misprints. I suppose whether it's the 16th century or the 21st, it always goes wrong when people don't count the rests. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Bonnie Blackburn. Bonnie is an eminent musicologist who has um, written extensively about a whole range of topics in the Renaissance period. Um, And I'm delighted to say that she's joining us today to discuss a composer who has, I think, been rather neglected um, in in recent times, Vicente Lusitano. So um, thank you so much for joining us, Bonnie. I should say also Bonnie has been a fabulous supporter and friend of the Marian Consort for, for many years and we're very grateful for that um, and for her help with this particular project. Um, so yeah, welcome Bonnie. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here and to talk about Lusitano, whom I've not thought anything about for 20 years since I wrote the Grove article. It was, it was nice to be able to brought, be brought back into the discussion, but especially to, to listen to just that little snippet of the Inviolata because I've never heard any of his music because I don't even know it's been performed. No, I, I, I don't think it has. I think that's one of the things is that actually his, his music is really very kind of un- unknown because there is a complete edition of it, I think. Um, you pointed me in, in the direction of that, actually, but it, it's very little known. And actually, a lot of people, I think, are, are, therefore aren't aware of his music beyond that one piece, Heo uh, Mihi Domine, his, his setting of that piece. Yeah, that, that one motet, which seems to have been widely circulated since, I think, the sort of 1980s, uh, when actually it was Robert Stevenson, was it, that kind of first uh, reappraised Lusitano and brought him a little bit back into the spotlight? Well, that was surprising. I mean, an article that turns up the first black composer, but then he, he wrote another article on, on Lusitano, which I knew better. But it's, it's interesting about his history, his early life, because... We actually know very little. And what we do know mostly is from an 18th century book, 18th century biography, that tells us most of the things that we know, that he was born in Olivenza, which is was at that time was a Portuguese enclave within Spain. Uh, he became a priest of the order of San Pedro, which, which order I don't know. 18th century biography says that he taught with great success in Padua and Viterbo. We know nothing about that. We have not found him in Padua or Viterbo, but he is most famous with the debate that he had with uh, Nicola Vicentino in Rome, the um, music theorist who at that time was the employee of Ippolito d'Este, Cardinal Ippolito d'Este. And Vicentino had this sort of secret coterie the Este family that he was teaching chromatic music to. This is this great idea about chromatic and enharmonic music. 
but they were all sworn to secrecy. They couldn't tell anybody about it. But it, it came out in this debate in Rome when Vicentino challenged Lusitano and said, composers these days do not know, have any idea what mode they are writing in. And Vicentino says, well, yes, I know we're writing in the diatonic no mode. And Vicentino says, but no, you have major thirds and you have minor thirds. These belong to the, uh, the ancient Greek, Greek modes, the anharmonic and uh, the chromatic. So you, you and modern composers don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so there was a debate set up in, in Rome between the two of them, probably quite a large audience. And it uh, was, there were two judges who were members of the papal chapel and they gave the judgment to Lusitano, to Vicentino's fury. <laughs> and uh, so eventually he sort of went off and sulked. So, but we don't know what Lusitano's reaction was after that. Then there's a gap in his career, perhaps where he went to Padua and Vivenza. Uh, and then the next thing we know about him, he has converted to Protestantism and he is seeking a job at the court of Württemberg and in Germany. <laughs> Why? Why would he do that? And so there's a big gap here, but we have the letter of um, Pier Paolo Vergero, who was an Italian reformist who had been at the court of Württemberg and recommended Lusitano to that position. He said, he's a good Christian and he's married, but he has no children. It means if he has no children, it's cheaper to hire him, not to pay for the family. So he sent a motet, which he was paid for by the court at Rothenberg, but uh, apparently he wasn't hired. And this is 1561. And then we have no idea what happened to him. That's all we know about him. It, it's really interesting because of course, it's not unusual for Renaissance composers for us to have relatively <laughs> scant biographies sometimes, you know, because oh. of course, historical records don't survive. And it's often happenstance when they do. But I think what's really interesting in this case is from what, from what you've said, Lusitano very clearly won this important debate, but Vicentino has kind of almost been vindicated by history, probably unfairly, because he's much more famous, uh, certainly nowadays in relative terms. And he seemingly had much more of an influence on successive generations of composers after, because of course, really there's a kind of direct line from Vicentino through to all of that Ferrarese experimentation with yes. chromatic writing, you know, people like Gesualdo and Utsaski and, and people like that. So it seems like in a way, Lusitano has been kind of given short shrift actually by history, very unfairly. Well, Vicentino got his revenge. And not only did he publish this treatise, which is very well known, uh, but he, he developed a, a keyboard that had 31 keys to the octave so that he could play this enharmonic and chromatic music. It could be demonstrated. And he, in his treatise, he's also published compositions that use the chromatic and the enharmonic modes. And so it, it took off from there. And then, and, and indeed, chromaticism becomes gradually more and more important. But it's, it's really interesting then to think that actually, because people, of course, and we've performed a lot of Gesualdo um, over the course of the Marian Consult's uh, history, but um, people think of Gesualdo as this kind of 
strange and dangerous innovator, but actually a lot of what he was doing had already been explored and mapped out 50 uh, years earlier and, and, and even earlier than oh, that. Yes. And when you think of uh, Lasso's um, Carmina Sibilarum, uh, which is, is very chromatic too, and that was an experimental piece. He never did anything like that afterwards, nothing before, but he wanted to show that he could do it. Of course, and then there's, there's that fantastic, um, very strange, again, obviously very experimental motet by Cipriano de Rore, um, and then also yes. an amazing, that amazing piece by, by Jakob Handel, uh, the Mirabile Mysterium, which is incredibly, very intensely chromatic as well. So yes, it's fascinating that so early in the 16th century, people really are experimenting with, with this style, and Lusitano um, among them. Um, you touched on it a little bit earlier when I mentioned that the Robert Stevenson article, but I think Absolutely, that one of the reasons that Lusitano seems to have come back into the spotlight is because, again, we can't be sure because there's not very much direct kind of firsthand uh, historical material that survives, but this possible inference that actually he may have been, as Robert Stevenson puts in that very kind of bold and sort of, um, I think, presumably hoping to inspire a lot of debate about it by uh, having such a kind of stark title. But when he says the first black published composer, and that seems to be something that really has kind of caught people's attention. I don't know if he's the first black published composer, mm -hmm. but the idea that he was back goes back to this 18th century biography, and he calls him mm -hmm. mestizo, mm -hmm. which means that it's a mixed, and either he had a black father and a white mother or vice versa. We don't know. The, I think the interesting thing is how did that affect his career? And what kind of complexion did he have? Was it obvious? It, it doesn't seem to have made any difference to his later career. And the interesting thing is I was reminded very many parallels with the rather odd career of the music theorist Pietro Aron who I, I know, now know was a converted Jew. And what effect did that have on his career? He, he actually had very poor training. Uh, he sort of picked it up all by himself. He was really self-taught. He became a priest. He had a job in Imola, in the cathedral. And then um, because of the, uh, the factional fighting in Imola, his altar was destroyed and the whole city was in chaos. He left and he went to Venice, but he didn't get another job in a cathedral or singing. He became a tutor to the sons of the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem. And then when the Grand Master died in 1534, had promised him some money and a silver cross, the sons of the heir contested this. The legal case goes on into the 17th century. Well, Aaron got nothing, so he had to leave. He went to Padua for, for about a year, maybe, looking for a patron, and then he gave up and became a monk in Bergamo, a little tiny church in Bergamo. And he wrote back to his friends, because he had a lot of correspondence, which still exists. He said, you know, you despise me for becoming a monk but I have been treated much better than I was with Monsignore. Here, I have a wonderful room. I have medical help. I have a boy to wait on me. And the chapel master of Santa Maria Maggiore in Bergamo came with all of his singers to sing vespers and double choir in my honor. 
with a madrigal too. So, so, so there. Phi <laughs> became a, a monk. I'm still Pietro Arm. And he published five treatises. Now, Pichon, Lusitano um, is like, someone like also publishing treatises. He published a, a treatise in Rome in 1553, this facile introduction to music. And it is, you can see that it's based on what he was doing teaching probably Dini's Lancaster. But what he's really interested in is improvisation. So it just gets back to the fundamentals. There's a long session on improvisation. And this treatise was reprinted in 1558 and then in uh, 1561, and this is just in recent years, so he's, he's becoming more well-known, and maybe you're recording the help. Well, I, I certainly hope that it serves to, to shed a, a little bit of light on him, and one of the things that, one of the, the few, I think, positive things that's come of, of the pandemic this year, certainly for me and, and for us, for Marion Consul, is um, that this kind of sort of enforced cessation of, of performing that we had for so many months actually allowed a little bit of time and space for reflection and for a little bit of kind of further research and really digging around into areas that in the normal course of things I wouldn't necessarily have had time to do. So we've also been able to explore a little bit in some of our digital projects, um, the music of Raffaella Aliotti, who is a composer I also didn't know at all, like I didn't know her music at all before this year. Absolutely fascinating. And again, one of these composers that is really interesting, particularly because of her biography. Again, she is uh, the first, she's the first uh, female composer to have sacred music, a whole volume of her sacred music published. But, you know, historical neglect means that she's she's much less well-known than a lot of her male contemporaries. And and the same mm -hmm. is with, with Lusitano. I find it funny that Lusitano, of course, his name, his surname, just is a descriptor, isn't it? Because it just means Portuguese. It, um, <laughs> yes, it does. And, um, well, many people at that time didn't have surnames. And uh, so he, he was not noble, not from a known family. So that's why they get called Lusitano. But this is also parallel to, to I know a lot more about Jews in Italy. They are named after the place that they come from, or they are called Tedesco because they have a German origin. Um, so I've done that from Aaron's grandfather. It was also an Arone, Arone d'Este, in the little small town of Este near Ferrara. But Aaron had to have a Christian, all the Jews had to have Christian names. I, I don't know um, whether Lusitana's family, his father converted or his mother converted, because this is very late. And 1492 is when the Moors were expelled from Spain. Mm. So it's, it's difficult to tell when his father or his mother came, or did they come from the, the Spanish uh, portion of the North Africa that's just across from the Gibraltar Straits, Ceuta, I mean, there's two of them now, there used to be seven Spanish mm. states spread out on the other side of the Straits of Gibraltar. And surely many of those people were mixed race or also Moorish, Moorish origin so we don't know no of course and again like like you say actually he's not unique in kind of being named after where he's from because so many composers end up with names that are either nicknames or just the, the name of their town like of course Jean Mouton a composer very dear to my heart originally called just Jean de Hollande because he was from Hollande 
Um, and then he got yes. this, this nickname. Yes, because they seem to love nicknames. You know, Antoine Neriche because he was very bad with money, and Mouton because he was apparently, you know, very mild mannered and all, all these things. Uh, but yeah, fascinating. And and one of the really nice things um, about having this time, like I said, to to explore a little bit um, into the biography and into the music of some of these less well known composers is coming across these these real gems. Um, and I'm so grateful to you because your help has been invaluable in putting together this. Um, new edition of one of Lusitano's motets that will be performing in concert this coming weekend in York, and that's going to be streamed online um, as part of the York Only Music Festival at home this Christmas, and also uh, at King's Place on the 15th of December, this fantastic setting of Indiolata by Lusitano, um, which took a little bit of unpicking, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, when, I, when I, I saw that, even though all the eight voice parts are written out, it's actually a canon between two of the voices. Mm -hmm. And when, when you had this mashup in the middle, we couldn't figure it out. I looked, I looked at it, followed along with the canon, and then I realized something happened. Some rest got dropped in one voice here, and the rest got dropped in another voice there. And as soon as you figure that out and sort of squeeze them together, but this, this is carelessness on Lusitano's part. Mm -hmm. He should have done it exactly. <laughs> I don't know how that came about. But as you say, the, the piece is a puzzle in itself because at its heart, it has these two canonic voices. So they both sing this cantus firmus, this kind of fixed uh, short quotation of music. And in fact, um, it's a piece which very much shows Lusitano's heritage, musical heritage, because of course, um, it's, a, it's a technique that quite a lot of composers used at that time, um, unusual for it to be in a motet as opposed to uh, in a mass setting, but it's based, isn't it, on a, a motet, a very famous motet by Josquin Desprez. I, I find it fascinating. Why um, do you think composers were drawn to the works of their predecessors and why particularly would they want to include them in their own compositions? Why would they want to kind of base a piece on, 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 a, on an existing motet? There is a huge tradition beginning with uh, using the chanson melodies of the late 16th century. But the Josquin Renaissance took off in the 16th century. And there were many, many people who imitated Josquin or say um, Zenfel took a four voice work and added two more voices, not changing the others. There's an article that's just um, come out on the, the long Josquin Renaissance. Uh, how many pieces were based on Josquin? In Violata also is, is very popular. Yeah, there are a number of composers who, who did that, but Josquin was the big person to imitate. And, and was that because his music was seen as kind of really an, an example of um, really, really good writing, kind of, you know, the, the best of, of Renaissance writing? And so imitating that was a kind of, it was a way of sort of borrowing a little bit of his, his street cred, really. Or was it because they wanted to pay their respects to Josquin? Or was it a little bit of everything? I think it was both. And it was also helpful that his music was published in print. People could go, go back to that, not just Petrucci, but also Antico's Motet print of, of 1516. And then the Germans are in 1540s, 1550s, Josquin, Josquin, Josquin. So you could hardly miss it. And, and of course, yes, I'm right in thinking that actually Josquin in some ways seems to have written more music after he died. Because there are all these um, pieces that publishers, slightly unscrupulous publishers, ascribe because they knew that Josquin would sell if, if a, a print, musical print had Josquin 
on the title if it said, oh, it's got new pieces by Josquin, people would buy it. They'd sell like hotcakes. So they just started saying all these pieces that absolutely weren't, you know, they were very clearly written in a much later style, just ascribing them to Josquin so they could sell copies of these prints. And that is why Josquin researchers, the question of authenticity is so vexed with Josquin. You know, he had a, a, an enormous over and as the years go by, keep shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. So, yes, it's amazing the kind of Josquin mania that sort of swept Europe through the, the first half of the 16th century. And obviously, Lusitano was no exception and he was, he was kind of caught up in this. But what I found fascinating from rehearsing the, uh, the Inviolata is that it's like listening to the Josquin, but through a sort of audio kaleidoscope, through a kind of prism refracting all of the sounds, because you can hear all of the original, partly because the canon is in there, partly because he uses a lot of the kind of the same melodic phrases. But because it's written for eight voices, he does all sorts of amazing and different things with it. And it's not incredibly chromatic. It's not chromatic in the same way that a piece like Heumihi Domine, the Lusitano piece that is most famous, I think, is. It's, it's not kind of jarring chromaticism, but there are these wonderfully kind of eccentric moments um, along the way where you just think, oh, oh yes, that's quite exciting. Um, but it's, it's absolutely stunning. So I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to, um, to giving it, I'm th I'm, I think I'm confident in saying it's first ever UK performance. Um, oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and probably the first performance of the piece for several hundred years, I would expect. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, a fascinating composer and a really welcome discovery for me. And like you said, I really hope that we have the opportunity to delve a bit more into his music um, and particularly into this this print, the very evocatively named Liber Primus Epigrammatum. One little detail I did want to ask about, which is that um, the publication, the surviving copy says 1555 for the, the Motet print of Lusitano. Okay. I, th I think you, well, you pointed me at, at this out to me. I, it was actually published in 1551, I think. Is that right? So there's a bit of- a, um, if, if you look very closely at it, you can see it was a one and then it has been changed to a five. But this is the only this is the only existing copy of it, so you can't tell if that was true of the others. Now I read some somewhere that somebody had su suggested that it was because uh, when it was published in 1551, he had a 10-year privilege from the Pope that nobody else could publish that under fine or anything. And then maybe after say six or seven years, he said. Well, I'm going to go away from Rome and I can't keep an eye on this. Um, and I would like to extend the privilege. And probably this time was probably a different Pope. And so that may be the reason. God, it looks pretty, it looks pretty good. It's a little wobbly, but it looks like pretty much like a five. That's the only reason I can think of. Fascinating. And I guess that I really I guess sort of encapsulates as you know, this fact that actually all of these historical details about Lusitano and about so many Renaissance composers really throw up more questions than they give answers. And, you know, it's one of the things that's endlessly fascinating is there is so much that we don't know that's conjecture, but there's so much still to find out, you know, because there are always uh, letters and bits of correspondence and things falling out of books, at the, you know, in the, in the back shelves of libraries, but also that, yes, there's, there's so much that's still a mystery. So really it's very evocative. Um, the little tantalizing details that we have, you know, we have to, piece it all together. Well, this, this will start people thinking and, and start looking like in Padua and Vicenza. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just so grateful that this volume of Motet survives, especially because, as you say, there's only one 
copy in existence. And, you know, the, like I said, like with historical documents, the music that comes down to us 400 years later, you know, is often, you know, really, it's really by chance that so much of it has survived because it ended up in private collections or somebody I, forgot. Sometimes, sometimes we know about it because it was, say, listed in uh, Hernando Colon's library catalogue. You know, copies exist. Of, of course, and yes, and that's always a great sadness when you know that a fantastic composer had three more volumes of music, but none of them survive. So, mm. but and we, I think we have to celebrate when they do. So, like, you know, things like this, this Lusitano Motet print. Bonnie, thank you so much. It's been really, really wonderful and so fascinating chatting to you and hearing about Lusitano and also about the parallels with Pietro Aron and with the experience of Jewish composers um, and Jewish people in Italy and, you know, this conversion to Catholicism and then Lusitano's conversion to Protestantism and showing how fluid the situation was then and also how many parallels there are with, with now, with the modern day. We think of, you know, it's a very, very different time, but actually so many things um, are the same because people, I think, are the same. But thank you so much. It's been a real, uh, real pleasure chatting with you. I really enjoyed it. So that's the end of this edition of the Marian Consort podcast. Many thanks for listening, and as always, if you have any questions, then please do drop us a line. We'll be performing Lusitana's Inviolata as part of the York Early Music Christmas Festival on Saturday, December 5th, and this concert will also be streamed as part of York Christmas at Home on Friday 11th December. It also features in our programme All Creation Waits, which we'll be giving at King's Place in London on Tuesday 15th December. You can find more details of these performances on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at MarianConsort, or on our website, marianconsort.co.uk, where you can also sign up to our mailing list. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>